chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. You can follow along with that. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you. I want to apologize if I'm not my sharpest this morning. I came down with a crazy case of the flu. And if you don't know this, pastors don't get flus on Tuesday or Wednesday when they could use just a day off in the middle of the week. They get flus on Saturday so that it has to be really confusing what to do on Sunday. So, uh, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's going to be a ride. Um, but that's why I showed up late so that I didn't have to touch anybody and spread my love to uh, you folks. And I'm going to take off early. So as we open our text, I have a question for you. And it's a, it's a genuine question. I want you to think about it again. I, I'm not going to poll you. You don't have to answer out loud. But I would like you to consider in your hearts who is in charge. And that is the main question that's going on in our text this morning. And it's, it's a question that's no less relevant today than it was 2,000 years ago. Essentially, you could break down the Christian life. You could break down Christian growth. You could break down what we call sanctification, which is the theological name for growing as a Christian, into how we answer the question, who is in charge? And if it's God that we believe to be the answer, then are we relinquishing control over our own lives? And are we holding on to our illusion of control less tightly? Essentially, that's what the Christian life is all about, isn't it? I mean, does this trickled down into our Christian life, or is this just theory? Do you live your life like God is in charge, and it's our job to come under him, or do you live your life like you are in charge, and it's God's job to go ahead of us and take away any of the roadblocks that may make your journey a little bit more difficult along the way um, is the way that you answered those questions and the way that you live your life both point in the same direction on a global level do you believe that God is in charge as you look at the insanity going on around the world as you look at the news going on during an election season do you have any hesitation in your spirit about who is really ev in charge even as we look at the deterioration that's taking place in the world around us today how about on a personal level as you begin to look at things in your life that sometimes look like they're spiraling out of control can you still just give more to the notion than lip service that it's God who is, in fact, in charge. In our text this morning, the Holy Spirit is magnifying and is demonstrating that Jesus will always be the authority of his church and the gospel will always be the heralding of that authority and to believe anything else other than that is nothing but an illusion. But also in this passage, it became 
painfully clear that the church was not going to be the authority over the nations, and they had to learn to be okay with that. And there had to be people that could use that lesson, that the church is not going to be the authority over the nation, and that's okay because Jesus' authority is not challenged by this fact. In fact, Jesus' authority cannot be challenged by anything, period. When he said, all authority has been given unto me in Matthew 28, he meant all authority. So I'm going to pray and we'll dig into our text. Jesus, I pray that you would illuminate Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, or that my own frailty would not keep your word from going forth, both in power and authority and in accuracy, Lord. I pray that people might come to know you for the first time today and would bow their knee to you. I pray that discouraged Christians, Lord, would find encouragement. I pray that wayward would find their way back to casting their gaze upon the magnificence of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, as our text begins, the main gist of it in general is the honeymoon period is over look with me starting in verse 17 of chapter 5 it says but the high priests rose up and all who were with them that is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life And when they heard this, they entered the temple, and at daybreak they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when... We opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this came to. And someone told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So our text begins with the apostles being thrown into prison, and there's no real reason for their arrest in this text. If you look at it in its context, the only thing that they really did wrong is that there was a growing sense of their popularity amongst the people in the text that Rich read last week that as they begin to minister, more people begin to believe in the message that they are teaching, and they are growing in both popularity and authority amongst the people. And instead of being able to be delighted that God was moving, even if it was not through them, the leaders get hostile as they begin to sense this authority authority begin to be pried from their fingers and begin to be loosened. In previous instances, those in, in ruling power would at least attempt to look for some kind of charge 
before they would bring some sort of arrest or charge against this new ragtag movement of Christians. But we're further along in the story now. It is advanced once it hits this point. This was sort of the go point to where you begin to see things taken to another level. And when I say that the honeymoon was over, I'm not saying that the church did not face any opposition up until now. But that opposition was always counterbalanced by a healthy dose of the falling of the Holy Ghost. Every time there was opposition that fell in the church, the Holy Ghost would just fall right alongside of it, and you would see something miraculous coming in and through this opposition. And the people, even if facing opposition, would then have this tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit to go along with it. And I'm not saying that the unique movement of the Spirit is over here. I mean, even in the first few verses that I just read, you have this angelic visitation opening up the prison and commissioning the people to go and preach the gospel. So the Spirit's still at work. As they face opposition, the Spirit is still right alongside of them. But now the difference is that opposition is beginning to turn into persecution. And we're going to see that become a major theme in two weeks with the arrest of Stephen. We're going to see that the Sadducees and the Pharisees go from flexing their muscles to actually starting to take out an arrest and to persecute those who are preaching the gospel. This goes way deeper than opposition. And it's going to be an interesting soil for the church to see how they thrive in spite of very real fears taking place in and through their lives. And, and I think we can relate to this, at least, at least on some level, because we know that Christians and brothers, Christian brothers and sisters around the globe are sharing in persecution. I mean, Yet in the midst of it, you see how the gospel has advanced in places like South Sudan, who is just constantly under persecution, or Myanmar, or China, despite the persecution. And even here, I wouldn't say that we are under persecution yet, but I would say that Christians and Christianity has begun to face opposition in our country in our lifetime. And opposition has even turned into hostility in some corners during our lifetime. So maybe we can learn some things from this text to see how hostility can turn into persecution and how that erosion can take place pretty quickly. And I want you to notice the reason behind the hostility. It says so right here in verse 17. It says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him and the party of the Sadducees and they were filled with jealousy. So it says that it was due to an increase in jealousy. And jealousy is always rooted in an illusion of authority. The governing authorities are jealous of what they see going on. They're starting to see their glory slip through their fingers and begin to be displaced and go elsewhere. So often as people do in situations like this, they begin 
to try to respond in jealousy, just trying to grasp on, trying to hold whatever they can, trying to maintain this illusion of authority. And that should not surprise us. The roots of jealousy trace back to the initial jealousy ever. Think of when, when Satan had his fall, as described in Isaiah and Ezekiel. What is the issue? That he could not handle that God was on the throne and he was not. He could not handle that God was the authority and was infinitely glorious and that he was not. He couldn't handle just getting to be a partaker in that glory and he tried to be a taker of that glory. So it was an authority issue resulting in jealousy. Or think of Cain and Abel, the first human instance that we see. What about Abel's offering? Uh, what, what, what was it about Abel's off yard sale? Right? Okay. Thank you. Woo! Yard, yard sale. All right. Sorry. Flu moment right there. Thank God for yard sales. So... <laughs> <laughs> Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's offering was not. And it produced something within Cain. It produced jealousy. And it was really an authority issue because Cain was upset that Abel seemed to have some sort of connection that he did not seem to have. And it resulted in jealousy. And it doesn't look any different here. The issue is that God is seemingly working differently in the lives of this new ragtag group of disciples than he had worked previously in other people's lives. Why does it seem as if God is on the throne through their preaching of the good news, but it's not on the throne on the preaching of their religion? Why do they seem to have a power that comes through the preaching of this gospel message, yet they seem to be losing any sense of power the further that they go along? So they respond in jealousy. And friends, it doesn't look any different in our lives. Isn't jealousy just rooted in feeling slighted that somebody else has been given something that we value and have not been given ourselves? So even our modern jealousy is still rooted in authority. Jealousy stems from taking authority that belongs to God and feeling slighted because all of a sudden it's not about you. So you throw a tantrum. There's even sanctified forms of jealousy, as silly as that sentence sounds to say, but I've been around long enough to see it when it looks like God is working over there in a way that he's not working over here. And I've even seen various forms of jealousy spiral out of that. And sort of a tangent, but kind of not a tangent at the same time. Can we commit to never be the kind of church that is jealous about God moving in other places? And I'm not just talking about not being jealous about, like, I think every church we hear about, like, God doing a work in Pakistan, and we're like, hey, that's awesome. What if somebody started a church across the street, and all of a sudden we start hearing revival breaking out? Is it still as awesome in your spirit as God moving in Pakistan? 
Or does jealousy begin to take root and do you begin to feel defensive? I, I mean, let's just say, for example, somebody did start a new church and it just starts taking off like crazy and it's the bee's knees and everybody is just, you're hearing that people are just getting saved left and right. Friends, that is nothing to be jealous about. If it were to happen, it would just be scratching the surface. And I would hope that your reaction would be to hit the floor in prayer and beg the Lord that there would be a hundred more like it that would be started in our community. So may we commit to never be the kind of church that is jealous about what God is doing in other places. Because when we are you look like the people in this passage, and I'm not talking about the apostles. You look like the other guys in this passage, trying to hang on to our own slice of the kingdom. And God has a massive kingdom that he's building. And he's inviting us to be a part of being kingdom builders with him. And it was never supposed to be ours anyway. We just get to participate in the advancement of it. So as the ruling authorities become less sympathetic to the cause of Christianity, the early Christians come to a conclusion that they're not going to become the authoritative class. Look at verses 27 through 32, and it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, and you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Oh, that that would be said about us someday. Imagine that, and here you are, and Tom's River is just filled with this teaching about this Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Mm. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as our leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. So what we see here is the rulers, they get together and they conspire to take the power back. To quote the great theologian, Zach De La Roca. Um, anybody out there that gets that, more power to you. <laughs> but they're saying, we, we told you not to do this, so we're going to come up with a plan figure out how to just make sure that you bow to uh, kiss the ring do not move on without our authoritatively allowing you to move on and that had to be a bitter pill for the early church to swallow I mean just look at the questions that they asked with regards to their expectations to what this time was going to look like this is the time that they had been waiting for and it had finally come and think about the questions that they had asked about, what is it going to look like when this time came? They asked questions like, God, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Or, God, you said that people who left worldly goods would rule with you. We left everything. So how much more do we get to rule with you? Or how about my favorite? Hey, Jesus, those guys didn't listen when we tried to pass through Samaria so can you give us some power to call down some fire from heaven and barbecue those suckers? <laughs> and each time, Jesus just patiently tries to teach them, no, 
That's not what my authority is going to look like as it begins to manifest itself on this earth, at least not for right now. And they're starting to learn a lesson, and Peter's pretty straightforward. He tells them, you, he points the finger, he says, you're the one that hung him on a tree. You have historically always stood in the way of the preaching of the gospel. And when Jesus walked the earth, you stood in way in the preaching of the gospel. And here you are still standing in the way of the preaching of the gospel. He did not expect that they were going to change the way that they operate in order to accommodate the preaching of the gospel. Get that, folks. Because his end game was not seeing ruling authorities to be in bed with the preaching of the gospel and to be in bed with the church. Their mission was to preach the good news of Jesus Christ regardless of how friendly the political climate was to the gospel. Typically, when the church and government are inseparably connected, it is not a good thing if you pick up a history book or the Bible or you read the news and corruption and hypocrisy are typically not far behind. And there are many who could stand to learn that lesson here in the States. I hear people say that they want to return back to a time when God and country are one and the same. And I can't say that there's nothing that's attractive about that. I would love for my kids to grow up in a climate that is more friendly to the gospel. And I certainly don't want our laws to be anti-Christian. And we ache when we observe the spiritual erosion around us. But we should be inspired when we look at texts like this. These folks were willing to live lives that were committed to going against the grain. What you see in chapter 5 is a commitment to swim upstream regardless of how difficult. They didn't just sit around and complain that the stream doesn't flow in the same direction that it used to. Instead, they commit to swimming upstream because they realize that the stream is no longer friendly to the commission that God had given them. The direction of the stream that it may flow, that might, that might change, folks. But guess what? The gospel doesn't. And we can always count on that. And Peter shows something fascinating, that though the church was not going to be in the place of authority, that Jesus was not losing any sense of authority, and no matter what direction the political tide was swayed, the gospel was the proclamation of the one who was truly in authority. That's what Peter tells them when they're like, hey, we told you not to be preaching in this guy's name anymore. And he's like, so what? <laughs> I'm not here to obey you. You're not the ultimate authority. You're not the one who I'm accountable to. You're not the one who will be the ultimate judge of my soul. When you come to the grips with the fact that authority is something that belongs to God, and the preaching of the gospel cannot be hindered, even when the tide of earthly authorities may turn hostile. Get that. As you look at the news and all the scary things out there, when you come to grips with the fact that authority is something that belongs to God, and the preaching of the gospel cannot be hindered even when the tide of earthly authorities may turn hostile. And that is 
liberating, friends. And it gives you boldness that is not of yourself, that comes from the Spirit. I mean, just look at Peter here. He doesn't have to shrink back from sharing the truth. He doesn't have to change the truth. He does not have to capitulate to anybody. He does not have to cater the way in which he delivers the truth to his audience because he knew and was confident who was truly in charge. And we can look at the erosion of the morality and mourn about it because morals are not a bad thing and it stinks that our country for all intents and purposes does lack a moral compass but the lack of the moral compass does not stop the proclamation or the spread of the preaching of the gospel amen so our jobs get this folks our jobs is not to reclaim the moral compass your job is to preach the gospel and as gospel transformation takes place, then God recalibrates the moral compass without you. The church is not the authority. The moral compass is not the authority. A compass only works if people know what the compass is supposed to be pointing to. That's what a compass is all about. So it's our job to be pointing and saying that's what the compass is supposed to be pointing to, folks. That's all we are on this earth. We are a compass. So Peter had a choice. Do you give in to the illusion of the world's authority and the authority of circumstances, or do you embrace the fact that God is the one who is in control? And he clearly states in the sermon that he gives that he believes who is control. Jesus also said it in his, one of his final sermons that he gave, and it's why I've given my life to church planting. It's why we do what we do here. That all authority has been given to him. And then he commissions us to go and make disciples and be his witnesses. So not only does Peter speak a big game, like he believes that all authority has been given to Jesus, he lives a life that backs it up. Brothers and sisters, if we claim that God is in control. But every time something takes place that doesn't line up with how we think that God should be controlling things and we pitch a fit, then we're really showing who we believe is in control. That's really the determining factor. You can say one thing with your words, but your lifestyle and the attitude that emanates from it is showing something else entirely. And ironically, even those who stood in opposition realized that though they could stand against Peter and the apostles, that even they weren't big enough to stand against God. Look at verses 33 through 40. It says, when they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while and he said to the men of Israel take care what you are about to do to these men for before these days Theodius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men about 400 joined him he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing after him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him he too perished and all who followed him were scattered 
So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of the undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So you might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I love how it says they took his advice. Yet they called them in and beat them. <laughs> so I didn't hear that. that. That's often like when I, I always tell my wife, I love it when I hear somebody say, Pastor Eric said, I always listen up really carefully because I'm like, I always love to hear what I said come back through me from somebody else. And I'm like, I never said anything that even resembles anything like that. I'm wondering if that's what it was like Gamaliel. Pastor Gamaliel said, leave these men alone and then take them and beat them and tell them not to go and preach the gospel. And he's like, I didn't say that. So first, what he does is he recalls other movements that have sprung up that seem to gain momentum only to lose a head of steam. He talks about Theodius, and he, he talks about how there was these 400 men that rose up, and, and they were all excited about this movement, only to have it be dispersed and come to nothing. And he's saying, and he's giving this illusion of these were man-made movements. They arose up, and God did not allow them to gain any traction. They weren't able to take off. So in verses 38 and 39, he comes to the conclusion that if this is not of God, stop getting so worked up about it. It's going to fizzle out. And if it is of God, you can't overthrow it anyway. Oh, that we would be able to look at our own lives and situations through the lenses of the same advice that by, I think, all accounts, this unbelieving man gave the advice and counsel of. If this thing going on in my life is not of God, then God's going to take care of it. He's, he's going he's to remove it. And it, if it is of God, why am I kicking my feet against it so hard? Why am I just kicking my feet against the goads when this is God that's doing a work and maybe he's doing something that's making me have to sacrifice my comfort in order to accomplish what God is doing. But that's okay because God is more concerned about your holiness than he is about your comfort. He's more concerned about the mission of God going forward than he is about our comfort in this life. Because guess what? We have eternity to be in full comfort in a place where it describes in Revelation 21 that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more pain and death and mourning will have no more. Amen? So as they released this notion of control, what I want to wrap up with is they were even able to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances, hostility, oppression, and even persecution. Look at verse 41, it says, And they left the presence of the council rejoicing as they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And there is something so incredibly liberating about giving up the notion of control and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There is something even more powerful in realizing, regardless of how 
difficult the circumstances are that are going on in your life, that God will be glorified, that he does not waste an ounce of pain. That's why they were even able to go forth rejoicing that they were suffering pain in his name because they knew that God would not waste it and he would use it to further glorify himself, which was their mission to begin with. Oh, that we could look at the pain that goes on in our life through those lenses and say, God will not waste this, so I do not have to kick against this because God is going to use this to magnify the greatness of himself in and through this. Amen? And when we get to that place where we hold God's glory above our own personal level of comfort, it is virtually impossible to squelch your joy. And that's how you get a book of Philippians. You want to know what Philippians was forged out of? It was stuff like this, just continuing to forge and forge and show you, oh man, he's not going to waste this suffering. He's going to use it. He's going to magnify himself. He's going to glorify himself. And then you get to the point where you look at the circumstances and you say, I don't worship my circumstances and my comfort. Oh God, just be glorified in this. I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. So as we wrap up, I have a couple of points and questions from the text for you to think about. Often people who bicker about the illusion of authority escaping are people who themselves are not placing themselves under God's authority. So I just ask you to consider that. Often some of the people that I meet that complain the most about God's authority is not the way that it used to be back in the day when I was growing up tend to be rogue and tend to be doing their own thing and are not under authority themselves. What's more important to you, seeing the church be an authority in our nation or placing yourself under the authority of the proclamation of the gospel in a local church? I'm going to ask that again. What's more important to you, seeing the church be the authority in our nation or placing yourself as an individual under the authority of a local gospel preaching church because to lament one but not have the other is the height of hypocrisy to be able to say oh I remember the days when God was in authority yet you don't place yourselves under any authority is hypocritical isn't it number three is do you see Jesus as being in authority even when the world seems to be spiraling out of authority and if you do isn't it liberating isn't it liberating to say I can turn off the news today and Jesus will still be Lord tomorrow number four do you see Jesus as being authority even when your world seems to be spiraling out of your authority and it's easy to see Jesus as an authority over there and be like, oh, God's sovereign over that until you feel ouch. And then when you feel that ouch, can you still say, oh, God is sovereign over this, even though it hurts? And the last one is, are you able to go about rejoicing and living your life on mission, even if the illusion of authority is slipping through your fingers because you know who true authority is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the true unshakable authority or that that cannot be in any way distorted, shaken, or taken away. 
thank you that not only are you sovereign, but you are good. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.